Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So we're going to continue our uh, summer series that we have been off of for a couple weeks uh, called The Best of Times and the Worst of Times. So we're working through the book of Acts together as a church, and we find ourselves in Acts chapter 5. And since we've been out, or I've been out for a couple weeks, let me give you a quick recap because we're jumping into the middle of a story. So to give you the background and context. So uh, the work that Jesus started, the movement that he started, his followers are now continuing on. And it it is now known as the church. Back then, it didn't really have a title for a while. Uh, They weren't even known as Christians for a little while. But these followers of Jesus have continued his mission. And as we get into the beginning, it starts out kind of with the bang. The church grows quickly. There's power. There's miracles. There's healings. People are coming to faith in Jesus. It's a great thing, except that the leading religious authorities and rulers and those in power aren't huge fans of what what this group is doing. And so they try to stop them at every turn. And so as we've seen so far this year that they've been imprisoned, they've been threatened, they've been beaten. And so as we left a couple weeks ago, the apostles were imprisoned again, not the first time, but something different happened this time. When they're in prison in the middle of the night, an angel supernaturally rescues them from this jail. And, they, and the angel gives them an instruction. He says, hey, I want you to keep preaching in the name of Jesus, even though they're telling you not to. And even though it got you in here, keep doing it. And so the next morning, the council who arrested them has gathered together, and they're going to meet and question these apostles of this new movement called the church. And they're going to get some information and threaten them further. Stop doing what you're doing. But when they go to the jail, they find that they're not there. And then the guard decides, he finds out, he discovers that they're actually in the temple courts preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. And so that's where we kind of left off a couple weeks ago. And so when the religious leaders gather and there's no one there, here's what happens. So we're going to pick it up here, Acts chapter 5, verse 26, where we're going to start today. Acts 5, 26. It says, the captain went with his temple guards and arrested the apostles, but without violence, for they were afraid the people would stone them. Then they brought the apostles before the high council where the high priest confronted them. Here's what he says. We gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name, he said. Instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him, and you want to make us responsible for his death. But Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit who is given by God to those who obey him. So as we continue on in Acts chapter 5 today, we're going to look at this idea of seal of approval. 
seal of approval. You know, a lot of the things that we purchase or consume have some sort of seal of approval. Even the movies that you watch, there are, you know, like Rotten Tomatoes, the critics have their score. Is this a good movie or not? Is it rotten or is it fresh? And then the viewers, the fans, they have their own rating. It's a seal of approval on, is this movie something that you should spend your time on uh, and your money on? Uh, the meat that you buy is stamped with, by the USDA. Is it approved or is it not approved? Uh, even like the Better Business Bureau has their seal of approval. This business, Stay away from them. They will cheat you. They are not uh, above board. This business, A-plus rating, so you can use them and feel confident that they'll do the job they say they will for the price they say they will. And so we have seals of approval all the time. But Peter here is talking about a specific type of seal from a, spe a specific person. And so what we'll see today is Peter is going to show us who the ultimate seal of approval should come from, and then we'll see what that means. For, for him, for his life and the apostles, and then what it means for us. Who the seal of approval, the ultimate seal of approval should come from and what that means for our lives. So Peter says here in Acts 5, he makes it very clear to these religious leaders who are threatening them, who have imprisoned them, who have beaten them already. He says, we're going to please God, not men. That is a powerful statement. That, that's a, a, a bold uh, statement. It's a noble statement, but really in the time and place where Peter is, that's a very dangerous statement for him to make. He knows there's a lot on the line here, and yet he still makes that point very clear. We're going to please God, not people. And this sentiment of the foolishness of pleasing people is something that uh, other great people from history have, have mentioned. Let me just mention a few. So uh, I've been reading a biography of Samuel Adams recently, and this quote from him kind of jumped out to me a few weeks ago. He says this, I am in fashion and out of fashion as the whim goes. So you ever, real, you ever realize that people are, are pretty fickle about their opinions of things, including you sometimes? They're unpredictable. Like one minute this person is really good friends with you, and then they have salsa that's too spicy, it upsets their stomach, and then they hate your guts for some reason. Like that's the only, was it the ham sandwich that you ate last night? Like what, I thought we were friends, and now you won't even give me the time of day. So Sam Adams said the same thing that Peter said. It doesn't do any good to try to win the approval of people, to try to please and placate people. It doesn't do any good. And on a more long-term approach, going back to the fourth century, the early church father, John Chrysostom, he says this. He says, if you knew how quickly people would forget about you after your death, you will not seek in your life to please anyone but God. How true is that? In, in the book of James, James writes that life is like a vapor. We're here one moment and we're gone. And then guess what? You're forgotten really quickly. Like your great, great grandkids, just maybe 50, 60 years from now, will not even know you probably even existed. And that's your own family, let alone people that barely knew you in your life. We're, we're forgotten so quickly. And so why, why, John Chrysostom is saying, why do we spend our lives and our energy and our time and our mental capacity and our emotional capacity trying to please everyone all the time when after we're six feet under, people forget we even existed? It doesn't make any sense. It's a waste of our time. Now, that's true in general, but then the Apostle Paul later on in Galatians, he gives a very spiritual flair to this when he writes this, Galatians 1 verse 10 Obviously, Paul writes, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. Now, we'll get, in, we'll get introduced to Paul in, in a few weeks, briefly, and then we won't talk about him for quite a while after that. But when you look at Paul, his ministry career upset pretty much everybody. So he was, as we'll see, a, a devout Pharisee. He was a devout Jew, highly skilled, highly trained, highly respected. But then he basically becomes a deserter in the eyes of the Jewish people because he becomes a Christian. 
and he wins people over to Christ, and so they're not happy with his choice in life. Uh, the Roman government sees him as a threat to their empire, to the Caesar. He's declaring Jesus is Lord when really Caesar is Lord. So he's upsetting, you know, th that government. Uh, the cultural elites that he rubs shoulders with sees him as like a simpleton and a fool. Talking about this Jewish carpenter, like that's not a, a high-ranking philosophy. Why would you devote your life to studying and talking about that? So no one's pleased with Paul, and he says, obviously, if my goal were to please people, I would have chosen a different career path. I'd be doing something different with my life. I wouldn't risk my life and be shipwrecked and beaten and left for dead multiple times if I was trying to please people because no one's really happy with me ever, okay? But so they, they see this same idea here. And that's what Peter says. We're going to please God, not people. So Peter's words are right, but how often do we find ourselves trying to please people? Quite often, I would say. Probably too often, I would say. And the reasons that we try to please people are usually pretty bad ones. So let's look for just a minute here at, I think, three main reasons, and we can connect these possible reasons that Peter would have been tempted to do, three bad reasons why we try to please or appease others. Let's look at this for just a couple minutes here. Three, th three things. First, I think out of this desire for connection, many times we try to please or appease others. And by that I mean it's basically, if I can get on the right side of the right person, then I'm in. If I, can, if I can find the person I really want influence from and like, and I can get in with them, then I get more clout, I, you know, I get more approval from more people, I can get in uh, to maybe places I couldn't before, and so it's about connection. But really, it's about posturing, right? It's about power over others, it's about position, it's a selfish motivation. And Peter and the apostles could have tried this approach, they could have said, okay, here's the deal. If we just kind of lay low on the Jesus thing for a little bit, like we believe it, but if we just maybe don't say it as loud as often, then maybe these officials will then let us in and we can have that connection. Maybe they could have even said, you know what, if we do, if we play the long game here and we kind of appease them and tone it down a bit and they bring us in, then maybe our movement will actually grow faster in the end. If we take a short-term loss, we'll have a long-term gain. They could have done that, but it would have really gone against their mission. Their mission was not to please people. It was not about connection to the right people. It was about connecting people to God through Jesus. So that's really not a good motivation for them or for us. Here's, the, here's a second reason why sometimes we please or appease others or try to. It's out of a desire for control. It's similar to connection, but here's the difference. Control is, if I appease this person, then they'll owe me later on down the line. If I do what they want now, then I can force them to do what I want later. That, my friends, is called manipulation. <laughs> it's not good for relationships. You probably know people who are like that. Maybe you've even been that way, if we're honest at times. We've used someone to control them. And this works really badly in marriages. Well, I do these things, and so now you have to do these things. Like we are, you know, uh, you know couples, you know, threaten divorce over the chores. And it's like, just calm down and do them together and grow closer and we'll solve the problem. But we do this all the time. Well, you know, I, I pull this much weight and you're not pulling your weight. It's, it's control. The relationship becomes about control. We appease to control. It's, and really, in any relationship, whether it's a marriage or a friendship or a family member, it's really, that's emotional abuse, right? Manipulation beats people down and we're using them to control them. So it, it's really, it's kind of a Trojan horse where we're, you know, we're appeasing them or, or whatever, but it's really with an alternative motive and it's a relationship based on leverage. Again, Peter and the apostles could have tried this method with the religious leaders. 
they could have gone along with what they wanted for a while and then said, okay, we've done our 10 years of service and now you're going to do what we want. They could have, like, behind the scenes, kind of underground, had this revolution movement. We're going to go along for a while and once we grow in number and we think we can overtake them, we're going to do it. Or they could have gotten into a connection with the leaders and learned kind of the skeletons in their closet and said, oh, now if you don't give us our way, I'm going to tell everyone who you really are. I'm going to reveal who you really are. So it's, it's a threat. It's, it's similar to uh, connection, but it's more in a manipulative type of way. They could have chosen that, but it, again, would have gone against their actual mission in pleasing God, not others. And the third bad reason that we many times try to please or appease others is out of comfort. And this is most obviously applicable to Acts 5. Peter and the apostles, Peter, John, the apostles, they probably didn't enjoy the persecution they were facing for their faith. I'm going to guess they weren't big fans of that. They probably would rather not have been in prison multiple times. They probably didn't want to have beatings. They probably didn't want to be threatened. They probably didn't want to feel like they had to hide all the time. They probably preferred to live out in the open, but they really can't if they want to be comfortable. So they could have said, okay, okay, we're, just, we're going to calm down and give in just so they'll stop. If we stop, they'll stop, right? And I think many times today, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, we have a very similar temptation. If I just calm down about the Jesus thing, then these people won't hate me quite so much. If I'm not as radical and sold out on my faith, then I won't be, then I won't be you know, rejected by so many people in society. My, my friends will bring me back if I just calm down. If I stay away from this sketchy social topic that the Bible speaks clearly on, then I won't get canceled by everybody all the time, right? We have that temptation here and now in this day and age as followers of Jesus to try out of comfort to try to please or appease others. If I compromise on these beliefs, I won't be looked down upon as like a simple, stupid Christian, right? But so maybe you're, maybe you're a follower of Jesus and, and you've been tempted to do that. You like to kind of back away from your faith, not be as vocal as maybe you feel you should, to back off of, you know, engaging in certain conversations at times because I just don't want to deal with the blowback. I, I want to be more comfortable in my existence, okay? Or maybe you're not a Christian and you've not jumped the line of faith because you don't want to deal with the blowback that that might cause. And it could be serious in your situation. I don't know your, your personal situation or your family's history, but sometimes making that decision, like, yeah, you're cut off from family. You're cut off from everything you know. And so there's, there's a lot to lose here. But if we're not making that decision because we want to be comfortable, can I just tell you this? Living that way is a fool's errand. You know why? Because it's never enough. And unless you totally just back out of faith completely, it's never enough. You can't be like an 80% Christian because then still, everybody's still going to hate you because you're a majority. You're, you're, we know you're a Christian, right? You can't be like a 50% Christian because then no one's going to know who you are and you're going to feel bad and you're going to feel like you're, you know, being hypocritical. So it doesn't work. So the problem is if we try to compromise our faith and our beliefs in an effort to find comfort, we actually become more uncomfortable because we're not pleasing anyone. We're trying to please everyone, and what we've done is done the opposite. You've abandoned beliefs or your faith and still didn't get what you wanted. The comfort still eluded you, so it's a fool's errand. So if, if, if you are a Christian, please don't try to do this. It doesn't work. It will leave you frustrated. It will leave you angry. It will leave you confused. And if this is your only barrier to faith, you're just going to have to cross that barrier and, and know that you have a family around you to help you to find comfort in a different type of way, okay? Let's turn this on its head for just a minute, though, and look at, we look at three bad reasons to appease others, but Peter says we do want to please someone, just not you. We want to please God. 
So quickly, this won't take quite as long, but quickly, let's look at three reasons that we should desire to please God. Three reasons. And you'll notice the first two are the same word. We'll talk about what that means here for just a second. So three good reasons that we should desire to please God. First is connection. But it's the inverse of pleasing others. We please others to try to gain a connection with them, but it's the opposite with God. Our desire to please God comes from the connection that we already have with him. We got a good thing going, me and God, right? I want to keep that thing going. I want to be as closely connected to him as I can, so I want to live life his way. I want to I see things the way he sees them and do things the way that he wants me to as often as I can. It's because of that connection that I desire to please God. Hopefully that's true for your life as well. And then the second one, the second word again is the same, but it is in fact the inverse of pleasing people. A reason, a good reason we should desire to please God is control. And it's not to gain control, it's because God is in control. So the reason that we desire to please God as his followers, so we're not, again, we're not trying to leverage God. We're not trying to be Christians to twist his arm to do what we want. We're not trying to obligate him to do everything the way that we would want it to be done. That, that's, again, manipulation. And with God, that definitely doesn't work, okay? But my desire instead to please God should be because I want to continue to give God more and more control over my life. I want to submit fully to his will for me. I want to live out his perfect plan for my life. Because he is in control, I want to give him more and more and more of that relationship over to him. So connection, control, but then the third good reason that's different here of why we should desire to please God is clarity. And it's connected to really the first two. So our desire to live out God's plan makes everything in life clearer. I didn't say easier. So don't misunderstand what that word is. It doesn't say easy. It says clarity. So yes, sometimes a life of faith in service to God is maybe a more difficult path. In many ways, much of the time, it is. But it's a clearer path. So Psalm 119, 105 says that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Living God's way helps us to know how to navigate life. Isaiah 30, 21, Isaiah says the Spirit said, the Spirit will tell you, this is the way, walk in it. The Holy Spirit is our guide. And Jesus says the same thing in John 16, 13. The Spirit will guide you into all truth. A life apart from God is a life of confusion and frustration. We don't know where to go much of the time. We don't know what we're doing much of the time. We lack the purpose that we seek much of the time. But a life connected to God makes everything clearer to help us know more easily, more often, where we should go and what our purpose really is. And that's what everybody's seeking. Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter where you live, what time period you live in, purpose is the number one goal of every human heart. And only a life connected and controlled by God in a relationship with Jesus gives that clarity in order to live that way. And notice one more thing about clarity, then we'll move on. Notice the last thing. Remember, the, the last thing that we talked about in uh, trying to please people was out of comfort. And if we, we discovered that when we try to appease others for comfort, we don't find it. But if, we, we, if our desire is to please God, we receive the clarity that we seek. One way never works, the other way always works the clarity in your life can help even if we talk with the kids this week wisdom making better key decisions in your life we'll talk about that a little bit next week as well uh, clarity means more direction more purpose even in suffering as the apostles show us here there there 
have been in prison multiple times. They're facing persecution all the time, opposition all the time, and yet they still know our purpose is to please God. Even in suffering, they saw purpose in that. We can live the same way as we receive clarity from desiring to please God. And so although Peter's words are easier said than done, they are still absolutely true. If you and I want to follow Jesus and live the way that God desires us to live, it means pleasing him, not seeking the seal of approval from others. But we have one more person that speaks up after Peter gives his address. We're going to finish Acts chapter 5 here with the rest of our time together here for just a few minutes. So after Peter gives his little short speech, uh, the council has some thoughts, and they're not great, as you can imagine. So let's pick it up at Acts 5 verse 33. Here's what happens. When they heard this, the council, when they heard this, the high council was furious and decided to kill them. But one member, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was an expert in religious law and respected by all the people, stood up and ordered that the men be sent outside the council chamber for a while. Let's stop and talk about this guy for just a second. Who is Gamaliel? He's actually a pretty important guy in Jewish culture. So his I'm going to get nerdy for just a second, but just hang on, okay? So Gamaliel's grandfather is named Hillel. And any Jewish scholar, any Jewish person is going to know who Hillel is. So there's two main schools of Jewish religious thought. One of them is named after a rabbi named Shammai, and the other is named after a rabbi named Hillel. So Gamaliel's grandfather is one of the two most renowned, well-respected, well-known Jewish rabbis in the history of the world. And Gamaliel's not too far down on the totem pole. He is one of probably a top three. He might be right under those top two as far as Jewish history is concerned. Uh, his, his renown, the respect that he has was nearly unparalleled. In fact, there's a book, it's called the Mishnah, and it's really a, a, a commentary of the Jewish law. So the rabbis will have these discussions and debates on what this one law means, and they'll write 25,000 pages on this one law, okay? And so in the middle of this uh, document that, was, that started in the end of the second century, Gamaliel, who's here in Acts, is actually mentioned in that book, the Mishnah. Here's what it says about him. It says, since Rabbi Gamaliel the elder died, there has been no more reverence for the law, and purity and piety died at the same time he did. So this man who's about to speak in Acts 5, when it says well-respected, that is not an exaggeration. Even to this day, Gamaliel in in Jewish circles is revered as one of the top, top, top teachers of all time. And, as we'll look at in a, later, later on, one of his star pupils you might know. His name is Saul, who, will become, who, who is also Paul. So Paul, who will become very important later in Acts, was the star pupil of this man who's about to speak here in Acts 5. So he speaks up and he gives some advice. Let's look at what his advice is. Uh, then he, this is verse 35, Acts 5, 35. Then he said to his colleagues, Men of Israel, take care of what you're planning to do to, the, to these men. Some time ago, there was that fellow Thutis who pretended to be someone great. About 400 others joined him, but he was killed, and all his followers went their various ways. The whole movement came to nothing. After him, at the time of the census, so around the time of Jesus' birth, there was Judas of Galilee. He got people to follow him, but he was killed too, and all his followers were scattered. So my advice is, leave these men alone. Let them go. If they are planning and doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourselves fighting against God. 
The others accepted his advice. They called in the apostles and had them flogged. Then they ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So scholars and commentators disagree on sort of the, uh, the tenor, uh, the tone, the premise of Gamaliel's advice. Uh, some people see it in a, a very negative light. Like they're basically what it comes down to, I could get into a whole list of things, but basically the main criticism here is that he didn't convert to Christianity when he's making this defense. They wished he would have gone one step further and really defended them and said, you know, in fact, I'm going to join them, you know. That sounds like, that voice sounds like somebody else I know. <laughs> um, that, that's the main complaint as far as I can tell and different scholars that, that aren't, or they, or they would say the advice he gives isn't 100% foolproof. And I would say, apart from Jesus, whose is? So he's in there with the rest of us with his advice, maybe being really good, but not always going to work. I, I tend to be seeing his uh, advice in a positive light, on the positive side. And I think actually what he does here, how we're going to take his advice for the next few minutes, is I think he actually unintentionally gives us really good advice in our faith. So if I'm going to boil down what Gamaliel just said into a, a phrase, it's this. If it's not of God, you can't force it. If it is of God, you can't stop it. It's basically what Gamaliel is saying here. And again, the complaint is, well, what about other world religions? They seem successful. Well, they will for a time, but not forever. And we won't see the end of that. That doesn't mean it still isn't true. What about other movements and other things? Well, we won't see the end of that possibly, but it still doesn't mean it's not true. Gamaliel here mentions two other previous uprisings, and he says they were not of God, so they failed. You know, they worked for a while. They, were, they got a few hundred supporters even. They thought this was maybe the Messiah. They thought this was going to overthrow the government, but it didn't work. But then he cautions the council, be careful how far you push these people. Because if it is of God, you're going to be in trouble. And he's still on their side. So he's speaking, if we push them too far, we may be fighting against God. Let me quickly just give an example of each of the half of this statement from Scripture to kind of show how this works, and then we'll look in our lives uh, as well. So if it's not of God, you can't force it. We'll come back to this later, but this is Acts 19. Uh, so we'll be in this, you know, whenever we get to Acts 19 next year or sometime. Uh, but for now, just as an example, if it's not of God, you can't force it. Here's a kind of a funny comical example in a way for us. Acts 19, 13. A group of Jews, this is during uh, Paul's ministry, a group of Jews was traveling from town to town casting out evil spirits. They tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantation, saying, so they said this to the demon, I command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a leading priest, were doing this. So there are seven brothers, of a, sons of a priest, that are trying to use this incantation to cast out demons. But one time, while they tried it, the evil spirit replied, that's not good. Uh, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered them, and attacked them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and battered. So these men tried to do something that wasn't of God, and it clearly <laughs> did not work. Using this, the, the incantation or the rote prayer from memory didn't work. It didn't have the power that they wanted it to have. And that's an extreme example, I'll grant you that, but the principle is still the same. So in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus and you try to do it on your own power, it's not going to work. You will flake out. You will become overburdened and too discouraged and you will give up. We have to have the power 
and the encouragement and the infilling of the Holy Spirit to live a life of faith. We cannot do it on our own. I can't, you can't, no one can. If it's not of God, you can't force it to happen. And on top of that, whatever plan God has for your life, it's too big for you to do on your own. Whatever plan God has for the rest of my life, it's too much for me to try to handle on my own. I'm not smart enough, strong enough, I'm not capable enough to do what he wants me to do in the way he wants me to. And so we have to rely upon the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit to do what God wants us to do. What it comes down to is this. I don't want us to pray, and maybe you've heard this before. This is not original to me. Maybe you've heard this before. Don't pray, God bless what I'm doing. Instead, pray, God help me to discover what you're blessing and help me to do that. Right? So if I try to make my thing God's thing, my thing will not work. But if I can learn what God's thing is and do that, it will, it will happen. The desired effect and result will come to pass. If your plans are not God's will, it won't happen and it won't work. If it's not of God, we can't force it. Let's look then at the second half of this statement. And I'm going to use two examples here, one quickly, kind of, again, a comical example from the life of Jesus. But the point is, if something is of God, you can't stop it. So uh, in Mark chapter 7, let's read Mark 7, 24 really quickly, and then we'll explain uh, what's going on here. Mark 7, 24. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. Poor Jesus just wants like a three-day weekend up north by the coast, and someone rats him out, okay? Someone got on Google, you know, and found the location, zoomed in, and then put it all over Twitter, you know, this is where Jesus is. If you want a, you know, miracle, go find this guy. So this poor guy just cannot get a break. He can't, it's, but, but why? Because he's from God. What he's doing is of God. So people just can't shut up about it. They can't stop talking about it. They can't leave him alone because he's the real deal. And so while he's there, he, he heals a demon-possessed girl, and then he travels further down, and then uh, he heals uh, a, a, a deaf and mute man. And then after he heals this man, another example here, just a few verses later, Mark seven thirty six. after he heals this man, Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone, but the more he told them not to, the more they spread the news. It's like trying to get a kid to keep a secret. The more that you tell them, don't, you can't tell. It's a secret. You know, it, it's, it's a surprise. The more that you stress the importance of the secret, you know that thing's getting out. Like, you know they're just going to tell everyone. Guess what? My dad's getting for his birthday. He's like just a total stranger on the street. They tell the secret to because they just can't keep it in. These people are that way. They, because, again, why? Because they know he's the real deal. They know that he is of God. They know that they might even know he is God. They know that what he's doing is of God, and they just can't keep it to themselves. It cannot be stopped. The news has to spread because he's doing God's will. But really on a, on a larger scale uh, in this point, of if it is of God, you can't stop it. There's an example where Jesus is having a discussion, sort of a powwow with his disciples, and they're having a discussion on who the people are saying Jesus is. You know, uh, well, some say you're a prophet, some say you're this prophet, some say you're this guy, and then here's what happens. Matthew 16, 15. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter, again, he says this now, and then in Acts 5, he lives it out. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. 
Jesus replied, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. So a couple years before Gamaliel gives his good advice about God not being stopped, Jesus stated this as a fact. So he pre-confirmed Gamaliel's advice with what he told his disciples in a different setting. If it is of God, you can't stop it. So the work that Peter and John are doing, the work that we even hear now 2,000 years later are doing, inevitably, ultimately cannot be stopped if it is of God. And we know that to be true. Think about the last 2,000 years since that statement was made. How many kings, how many rulers, how many governments, how many dictators have tried to stamp out the church? And yet the church still stands. Groups of all kinds have tried to pressure and persecute the church out of existence, but the church still stands. Even our current culture tries to denigrate, ostracize, and shame the church as a dangerous fringe group, but the church still stands. If it's not of God, you can't force it. If it is of God, you can't stop it. No one can. The gates of hell, Satan himself cannot stop it. So no power, no authority, no influence can stop what God is doing. Let's close for just a second by putting these two pieces together. So we talked about God's seal of approval that we should seek after, and then we talked about God's plan that flows from that. So we're going to put these together and see that this seal of approval from God to you has an effect on your life. The approval of God on you and the plan of God for you are linked. One more scripture as we close. 1 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. Paul again here writes this. So you can see we were not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery, for we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. Notice two things about this verse that combine these two ideas today. First, he says that we are approved by God. Don't forget this. Your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, okay, your life of faith is not a pursuit to find the approval of God. Your life of faith is living in the position that you've already been approved by God through Christ. Okay? There's a big difference there. So I'm not trying to earn God's love or acceptance or approval. If I'm in Christ, I've already found it. So what that means is I don't have to try to earn what I've already got. I can then do what God wants me to do in that position. That also means I don't have to find approval and acceptance in everything and everyone else because his is the only one that matters anyway. So if I upset them but I'm pleasing God, now, now again, don't be a, a jerk Christian. All right, let's avoid that because that, that kind of kills both parts of that. But if you're just living your life of faith authentically, honestly, you know, uh, in your everyday life and people just don't like that or don't approve of that or they just, I'm done with you, but you're pleasing God, then that's just what we have to, we have to know that's just how it's going to be. So we are approved by God, and that's all that we need. But then he says, we're approved by God, so we've been entrusted with the good news. And our purpose is to please God. So God's approval of us leads then to God's plan for us. We, and we have the same ultimate purpose that Peter and Paul and the apostles had, that is to please God by, he's entrusted us with the good news. And so just like the people that wouldn't leave Jesus alone, I hope that that's me. Like, I'm telling people about Jesus and what he's done and who he is and how great and awesome he is. Like, I don't, it's, the, the news is too good to keep in. 
the, the message is too great for us to just not do anything with that. And so we want to live in God's approval and then fulfill God's plan through that. That's the whole point of what we see here in Acts 5. Is it dangerous sometimes? Maybe. Is it uncomfortable sometimes? Yeah. Are there costs to that? Certainly there are. But that's, that's the goal. I live, as a follower of Jesus, I live in the approval of God and live out his plan and purpose for my life, which is, as we know here at First Century, to help others find love, hope, and life in Jesus. That's the power today of this seal of approval. Let's pray. God, my prayer today is that we would remember, first, the words of Peter, that our purpose would be to live in your approval, not to seek others' approval. And so what that means is, is we don't have to chase after your approval because you've given that seal on us uh, with the relationship that we have through your son. And that also means we don't have to chase it after everything and everyone else, what peace that can give us. And may all that we do then flow from that. And may we remember the words of Gamaliel as well, that if, if you're not in it, it's not going to work. If it's our plan, we need to get on your plan. Because if it is of you, then it cannot be stopped. No power, no authority, no opposition can overcome and undo what you're doing. And if we're a part of that, we can also find peace in that fact today. Your church stands, and we as your church stand still to this day. And so may we live that out every day, and you, may you be with us as we stand. Amen.